Good morning, good, good morning. Wow, that was a little loud. Hopefully I didn't scare anyone off the road. Huh! Boo! <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, sometimes I feel like you need that jolt of energy to just get you up in the morning. That's why my alarm on my phone is... It's like the old car horn. Oh, yeah? It's, for... it's not just the traditional no. kind of beeps? I go for the most obnoxious sound A nice sound jingle ever. jingle? No. I, I want to wake up already upset, already annoyed I have to get up. Because I'm going to be that way anyway, so I might as well just hammer that in with a... It's true. Is <laughs> it particularly rough for you getting up uh, on a morning where it's rainy outside? It's kind of overca- overcast, cloudy? Well, I didn't realize it was until I stepped out the front door. Sure. Because, uh, you know, shutters closed, windows closed, whatever. So, yeah, but being here in the office and looking outside and seeing the gloom, it does make me want to... Get back in bed, turn on the candle. Oh, exactly. Whip out a book. Yeah. Put on some Drake in the background, <laughs> get get moody, get in my feels. Well, so obviously it's rainy here in Dallas, Texas this morning, and so it's, it's a gloomy morning. Daniel wants to, you know, get back in his jammies and get cozy, but uh, good morning to wherever you are. <laughs> good morning, everyone. I'm Daniel Litwin, voice of B2B. I'm Tyler Kern, not the voice of B2B, but we're excited that you're here for Business Casual this morning. As you wake up this morning, the Dow is up 372, the Nasdaq's up 153, the price of oil is at $55.48 a barrel. Daniel, we have a big show ahead of us today. Yeah, we've got a lot, a lot of exciting stuff uh, from chatting with Miley Holmes, who's a co-owner of Easy Slider Food Truck, and they're, they're a gourmet slider food truck, so... I am into that. Yeah. I'm here for that. If you go to their website, you'll see they've got the little sliders, and they, they put the toothpick in, and then they garnish it on top with something to add. So, you know, there's one I think with like goat cheese and something that's meant to be a little sweeter. They put a little strawberry on top. Oh, mm, come on. So cute. But it's so it just they they look so good. Anyways, we're chatting with her about the business back ends of running a food truck. Feels very timely. Um ran across an article on it that really piqued my interest and got me realizing that yeah, wow, we really are in the midst of like a food truck boom. It's profitable and it's exciting to own a food truck. So we wanted to break down what does it look like to enter the scene today. We're going to be chatting with Miley about that, which is exciting. That's going to be really, really exciting. I'm looking forward to that conversation. We have another edition of the shortlist coming up. We're going to be talking about a subscription service for Nike. That'll Ooh. be interesting, as well as the protests in Hong Kong, what that means for a be- uh, like in a business sense. Then we'll also talk the positives and negatives of extended reality, Daniel. This is something you're particularly excited about. Yeah, it's something that I, you know, since I've been here at MarketScale for about a year and uh, a few months now, three, four months, um, uh, there are a few topics that I've just sort of picked up along the way and become like, not an expert on, but just familiar with. Uh, Extended reality is one of those. Uh, Same with drones. Um, some ed tech, like gamification of software, things that I've picked up and done so many interviews on and now feel like I can have a healthy conversation around it. This is one of those things. It's fresh, it's exciting, it's growing, and it's in its infancy. And there are a lot of industries that want to jump in on the ground floor. So I'm going to be breaking down a little bit of what are the pros, what are the cons right now, and what is limiting it from becoming a standard, and should it even become a standard in the business world 
I'm excited to break that down too. Well, one of the ways that you've kind of learned a lot about this type of technology and uh, one of the other things that you've done a lot while you've been at MarketScale is go to trade shows. And, Correct. Uh, Consumer Electronics Show is, is obviously one of the bigger ones, and you were there this past year. Yeah, CES was awesome. Yeah, so you got to go out to CES. Well, news has kind of come out that CES, the tech conference, has aimed to improve its reputation with women. Okay. Now, this is interesting to me. They're doing away with the idea of booth babes. <laughs> um, and I don't know that they're necessarily forbidding uh, companies from having extra people at their booth that they have <laughs> right. hired on. What they're doing, though, is really cracking down and tightening up the dress code quite a bit to not allow for the scantily clad woman to try to entice people to certain booths and that sort of thing. And, I mean, it makes sense. It, it, Infocom did away with the booth babes, or at least just on like a like a, a standard level of like everyone's gonna have a booth babe. That that has kind of phased out. They've also gotten rid of um they had some like awards that they would give out. It was like uh best best booth babes or something like that. Um, goodness gracious. Yeah, you know, it it's just it feels dated. It feels like from a previous generation and I'm glad that these shows are moving away from that because at the end of the day, I feel like the technology and what's happening there, how it's growing, how it's impacting industries, that's why people go there in the first place. It almost does a disservice to people's intelligence that, like, oh, I'm only here because I get to see a Hooters waitress, you know what I mean, when I go to the booth. Like, you should value what you're bringing to the table and the conversations you're having, I think, a little more. So I'm glad that the standard is shifting and that that doesn't feel like it has to be the way you get people to your booth anymore. Yeah, and if if scantily clad women is what you're after when you're at a show like this, I mean, <laughs> it's in Las Vegas, so yeah, right, right. It's, it's not like it's not accessible. If that's really what, like, I I, I don't know. I to, mean, to me, you're it's, totally right. To me, it's always just felt like such a such a strange thing to have in the first place. I get I get why it's been around, but one of the big things to me is that uh, according to Commercial Integrator, it's 86 percent of the industry. Is still male. I mean, so uh, it's well, tough to hear, but I, I think it makes sense. Well, and as a result, I, I think that. And by it makes sense, I mean like it's a shame yeah. that that still uh, happens. But I mean, with a lot of STEM fields, anything that's kind of tech, AV mm-hmm. focused, it's still very male dominated. Something we saw at Infocom still. I mean, the fact that we have to have. An, an Avixa Women's Council right. breakfast, that that has to be a grand event and that we're still talking about, wow, we grew so much in the last year. Like, it's so great to see so many new councils going up. Like, bringing women into STEM fields is still kind of a a forward-pushing initiative. It's something that people have to put effort into. It's not something that has become a standard yeah. yet. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I bring out that stat not to say that there should be booth babes because there are so many guys in the industry. <laughs> yeah, right, But to right. say that I think that having something like that as just a standard operating procedure for so many years I think is a turnoff to women in the industry and not something that um, anytime there's that, that objectification of women, you're not thinking of them as... Oh, this is uh, you know an executive, or this right. is somebody that is 
um, you know, that, that's here for the same reasons I am. You're thinking, oh, hey, look, there's this booth babe over here, and I'm right. going to go talk to her. I, I, I don't know. So I hope what, that what this does is elevates the standing of women in the industry, not artificially, but because they deserve it, because yeah. there are qualified women working in pro-AV. And so that, that's my hope. And, and, and I'm curious about whether or not this makes uh, the industry as a whole just more welcoming to women in general when you kind of get rid of some of this stuff that, you're right, feels like it's from a previous generation, a previous time. I'm gone by, I hope. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've had this conversation with people uh, around Infocom a few times, but, you know, it's the sentiment where you do have qualified women, sometimes women executives that are coming to these shows, and they're at the booth, and they turn to their left, and at their same booth, it's like booth babes trying to get people to come to their booth, and and you look around, it's like, wow, the majority of women that are here are booth babes, not... (laughs) you know, uh, executives or people that are leading in this industry uh, that are women. So it's frustrating, I think, for them to see that. And, you know, to, to push it even further, um, you know, by by bringing more attention to the fact that there's like kind of a superficialness to a lot of those shows, mm-hmm. um, I think just like refocuses the conversation on what should we be even showcasing here at the shows. And so linked in with this, they're also going to start including sexual technology startups at CES this year, which is kind of controversial. As controversial as last year, they awarded an award to a company that was a, a sexual technology startup. They then rescinded the award. It was like, oh, this is too testy. But then they gave it back after pushback. <laughs> And there's, you should go read the article on Commercial Integrator. They lay out the full history of CES and kind of its relationship with the like adult video industry, sexual technology industry. It's very right. interesting that there is a deep link there. But you know, I think that continues to push forward this conversation that normalizing some of these things that make a lot of money, they are technology, they're innovative, and they have a history at these shows. Why do we need to be avoiding them? Why not bring them into the mix? Why not showcase the cool innovations that are happening there? And I think that goes hand in hand with making women feel like they're more valued there at the show. Right. And not feeling like everything has to be superficial. Everything has to be kind of, you know, it's like on one hand, well, we want booth babes. And on the other hand, we don't want to bring this technology into the show floor. So it's like, let's let's move on. Absolutely. Let's take that next step. So it's exciting. I'm, I'm glad to see CES doing what some of its other contemporary shows are doing. We'll have to see how that changes things at CES this coming year. But staying in kind of that world of software and technology, Google Maps has made a little bit of an update, Daniel. And I'm, I'm really curious to see what this is going to be like. As somebody that likes to travel, Google Maps has kind of brought in a solution and, and incorporated it into Maps that kind of makes traveling a lot easier. It kind of makes Google Maps your one stop for mm. everything that you need. Break it down. You're going to have a reservations tab under My Places now in Google Maps. Now, what that's going to do is it's going to show you all of your hotel and flight information for any upcoming trips and uh, they can give you a price predictor and and that sort of thing but I'm curious what's the upside here for Google is it simply just that Google Maps kind of becomes your all-in-one travel solution now and that it's an indispensable part of travel you don't leave your Google Maps uh, you know turned off I suppose when you're trying to check into the hotel or whatever you just always have it open and and I'm also wondering just kind of the data that they're going to be able to collect from that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I think it's just another step for Google to try to keep people on their site and their apps. Right. We saw this um, with 
how they're trying to redesign their shopping page. We had Brian Eisenberg come on and talk to us about that on the show a couple weeks ago, which was great. Uh, And it just goes to show Google is realizing there are competitors that do what they do and they give it a flashy look or they make it more accessible or whatever it is. And the, the standard of Google I don't think is as powerful as they hoped or like the the ubiquity of Google is not quite as solid as they might have expected. People are willing to step away from the convenience of Google to go to something they like better, whether we're talking Waze as like a travel um, app or whether we're talking Amazon to do all their shopping. They're not going to the Google shopping tab. Mm -hmm. So again, Mm -hmm. this is just another way, in my opinion, for them to keep people on Google keep them using Google and to continue to integrate Google into literally every single part of their life. I mean, I'm not going to complain. I love my Google home. Sure. So do I. So do I. Absolutely. And one of the things that stands out to me is from a business perspective, Google absolutely has to know who you are and where you are. Otherwise, your business may as well not exist at this point. It's kind of getting to that level of of things, right? If Google Maps can't find your company, can't find your restaurant, if Google Maps uh, doesn't, if you're, if you don't interact well with Google, you know, if if your hotel reservation can't be found there under that Google Maps thing, now you're going to become more and more obsolete. And I talked to Rev Ciancio about this. He's a an influencer and kind of a, a guy in that space of search engine optimization and that sort of thing for restaurants and for hospitality. And we talked about this uh, not that long ago, just how important it is for uh, you to be able to be easily found on Google. And this is what he had to say. You know, the magic question is, how does your restaurant get into the map pack? How does Google know what answers to give? And if you as a restaurant marketer or owner understand how the map pack works and how Google selects a business, right, you can better... Uh, position your restaurant to be the answer that Google gives in that map pack. If people can't find your restaurant online, none of the other things matter. And we go on to, in that interview, kind of explain what those other things that he's talking about are in this case. But he, he basically says, people can't find your restaurant online or can't find your hotel online, can't find it on Google, and then they can't find it in person. Then yeah. Nothing else you do marketing wise matters. Doesn't exist. At yeah, that point. like what you do Instagram wise doesn't matter if you aren't <laughs> getting the basics right there. Right. And I think it's this, this next move by uh, Google just kind of highlights that even more. The last thing I wanted to talk about was they uh, are releasing a beta feature on Google Maps called Live View, where you basically hold up your phone and the it, it kind of gives you pop up uh, wayfinding almost where I like, that. like AR. So it gives you the arrows where you need to turn as you kind of turn your phone around and that sort of mm. thing. So that looks very, very interesting to me. And as somebody who gets lost everywhere, literally, literally, I get lost three blocks away from oh, 100%. Bank of America. Yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing in downtown Dallas. Are you I'm, kidding me? I'm, I'm awful. I, I, are you kidding me? I, I do not have that compass in my brain. <laughs> no, definitely not. That's like my two things I am horrible at are like financial, like really deep investment kind of conversations. So that has to do with like stock market transactions. It goes right over my head. Also geography yep. and a general sense of direction. I'm kind of a GPS <laughs> like uh, addict, I think. Same. I, it's, it's sad. It's sad. Maybe I just need to get out into nature and commune with the cardinal directions or something. Good luck with that compass. I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep Google Maps. All right, coming up next is going to be our conversation with Miley Holmes, the co-owner of Easy Slider, right after this 30-second break, so don't go anywhere. Are you tired of all job postings looking the same and want to find a way to help yours stand out? 
Get yourself a market scale JobCast. JobCasts are a compelling piece of recruitment content that differentiate your job post above all the others. What is a JobCast, you might ask? They're a short podcast that gets to the heart of what makes your company unique and stand out in a world full of copycats and cheap knockoffs. Once produced, the JobCast can be added to your job posting and put on your website. Stop getting lost in the job board shuffle and start standing out with the Market Scale JobCast. All right, everyone. So for our thought leader voice today, we're bringing on Miley Holmes. She's the co-owner of Easy Slider, which is a Dallas-based gourmet sliders food truck. They also have a brick-and-mortar location here in Dallas in Deep Ellum. We're going to get some insights on the business back ends of running a food truck in 2019. Miley, it's great to have you on. How are you doing this morning? Hey, guys. I'm great. Thanks for having me. We appreciate the time. So, Miley, one of the big decisions when it's time to open a food truck business is really deciding whether you're going to rent or you're going to own your truck. Uh, The question is on people's minds. Most recently, it was posed in Nation's Restaurant News, which is kind of what motivated the segment. But did you have to grapple with this decision uh, when you decided to start Easy Slider? And if so, what are some of the tips you've learned along the way? And have you learned to kind of balance some of those costs? Right. Um, When we started, we were sort of um, all in. So we didn't even consider renting. We probably had a lot more nerves than we should have. (laughs) Um, but so we, so we were able, we financed our first truck, um, with the owner, which was just best case scenario. I mean, ultimately, uh, as you said, we have three trucks now, so we ultimately, we bought all of them. Um, but obviously I have some counterparts who have rented and I do think renting is an awesome option if, um, financially, maybe not so much. The monthly costs are significantly, um, pretty significantly higher, um, but if you know you're unsure of your concept, if you're unsure if this is the career change for you, if you're unsure if it's a lifestyle, um, and you want to get in with rel- relatively little commitment, renting I think is is a great option. I would just say, um, you know, if you keep a little capital on hand for for some cushion those first few months, sure. because you know, regard because regardless of how great the concept is, regardless of how viable it is. Uh, you know, a few hundred dollars can make a difference those first few months of business. Um, and those higher costs of renting could could sort of make or break. So well, that's something to consider. Yeah. And I mean, you, yeah, you, go ahead. you know, you mentioned uh, that, you know, if you're kind of unsure about entering the industry, it might be better to rent at first. Is this an industry that right. you should even kind of make those gambles on because it just I feel like when you enter the service the restaurant industry in any capacity you know it's it's tough it's a tough industry and it's not like it's immediately (laughs) lucrative so is this really the industry you recommend people to take that gamble on right um I sort of uh, do uh you know it's a grueling business with so many moving parts and and so many variables and and uh so much, you know, uh, just so many variables. But um, I sort of admire those people that are committed and have some skin in the game from day one. It kind of shows, uh, I don't know, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate those that have some skin in the game and have some commitment because I think it's become sort of um, – unrealistically it's been portrayed like an easy entry you know it's easy to get into the food truck business and and so um that kind of weeds weeds uh those who are not serious and out i guess yeah 
Well, and uh, and so y'all yeah. have so, been very I'm, successful. You know, you've grown your food truck from just a food truck to now you've got, you said three, and you also have a brick and mortar location. Um, but obviously not right. every food truck has that same path to success. Like you were saying, you know, you've got to have some skin in the game, but right. you've also got to have right. a unique product and you've got to approach it right. from a, from an interesting perspective. So what really worked right. for y'all to differentiate yourselves and how did you approach the marketing rollout for your food truck? Right. Um, well, when we first opened, I would say, uh, what set us apart. I mean, we would do anything. Our, our marketing was meeting as many people, serving as many people. Um, you know, you called us to come out, we would be there for 20 people. Great. You know, um, so, uh, obviously social media was a huge piece of the puzzle. Um, uh, and still is. Um, but, uh, yeah, sort of our path to success was, uh, we were committed. We were all in, um, so and we knew we were prepared for those first few months or even year to be particularly difficult. So we worked around the clock 24 um, seven, just as I said, meeting as many people as we could serving as many people as we could um, and getting our name out of out there. Um, and word of mouth has really, really, um, you know, been huge for us. We we're serving, we have clients here in 2019 that we were serving in 2012. So, um, so yeah, just, trying to get some loyalty from folks and meet as many people as possible. Um, and, uh, yeah, the business was there. Um, so that's why we expanded. We start, we began to track our lost business after about a year or two and realized we needed another truck. So we invested right away hmm. and then third truck right away. Um, so yeah, that's it. Just being aggressive, I guess. Yeah, that's really cool. Now we're talking to Miley Holmes, co-owner of Easy Slider. Miley, have you seen um, the way that cities, uh, you know, you're located in Dallas in, in particular, but have you seen the way that cities interact and kind of accept food trucks uh, change over the last several years as they've become kind of a, a bigger and bigger part of the industry? Have you seen any of those uh, laws relaxed or anything like that? Um, I wouldn't say laws relaxed. What I have witnessed is. Um, some uh, newer developments, you know, outside of the, um, outside of Dallas, sort of in the uh, suburbs. Initially, they didn't know what to do with food trucks. We couldn't really visit those places, not because they didn't want us there. They just had nothing on the books in terms of regulations. They were, you know, a little skittish to um, let food trucks come in. But pretty quickly, you know, um, most everyone has has gotten some kind of regulations on the books, and so we are allowed to go pretty much everywhere in the Metroplex. So that's been very cool to see. I would say overall, places are very accepting. Uh, people are excited about food trucks. I mean, it's fun. It's cool. It adds something to the community. Um, so yeah, I would. I wouldn't say, as I said, um, relax and regulations relaxed at all, but more people are allowing for regulations creating regulations for food trucks, which oh. is fine. Um, you know, we want to travel as far as we can, right. see as many people as we can. So, yeah. Well, Miley Holmes, co-owner of Easy Slider, thank you so much for joining us on Business Casual this morning. It was a pleasure getting to chat. Sure. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. You too. Yeah, you know, it's it's a really interesting concept. Um, and being profitable as a food truck, I think, has become – uh, more accessible. I just want to throw out this last stat for everyone before we transition over, but yep. according to a recent survey with Food Truck Empire, um, a solid 85% of food truck owners make over 100 k Wow. More than 50% 
make more than 150k. So, you know, it's not crazy. It's not like a, you're, you're a millionaire with your business, but at the same time, it's not chump change. It's definitely something that if you approach it correctly and you approach it with a unique product, look, brand, voice, I think you can make a solid stake in it because, like she was saying, Dallas, Austin, I mean, these are just here, but you look out at um, cities in California, cities in, in Florida, cities all over the place mm-hmm. that are putting an emphasis on we want more food trucks we want food truck events sure i mean st sure. louis has a whole like food truck event that mm-hmm. they have i think it's like at least once a month every friday i don't know i went to it a couple couple months ago but anyways yeah food trucks are great food trucks are exploding i want more all right well coming up next we're going to get to the short list we're going to talk about a nike subscription model and some protests in hong kong so that's going to be on this week's you just made the list the short list Today is Wednesday, August 12th, and this is The Shortlist. 67% of retailers report higher revenue after launching subscription-based services, and the retail giant Nike looks to follow that trend. Nike announced its first jump into the shoe subscription service with a program called the Nike Adventure Club. The program is geared specifically for parents with kids ages 2 to 10 to accommodate the constant need for purchasing new shoes in different sizes. The company hopes this move will capture a larger share of the $10 billion kids' shoe market. Here's CNBC's Lauren Thomas with more. Nike clearly wants to take advantage of this, the market for kids' footwear in the U.S. And when I interviewed the general manager of this uh, platform, Nike Adventure Club, he said, we're already looking at other categories. It'll be interesting, you know, from a business standpoint, this is obviously a new revenue stream for them. And if they can get people that are willing to stick with the box, you know, it, it would be a benefit to Nike. As delivery woes with Amazon continue to grow, look for shipping providers like FedEx to capitalize on this program. Authorities in Hong Kong canceled hundreds of flights in response to large-scale protests inside the city's international airport this week. This is the latest blow to the region's travel and hospitality industries. Here's the Straits Times' Jeremy Ah Young with how this could have a longer-term impact on the region. You can reason that if there's this much disruption, surely your business travelers, your tourists will be thinking twice about whether they want to make that trip to Hong Kong. Especially if, uh, you know, if it's discretionary travel, you can decide whether you want to go and you see people getting stuck in the airport because they can't take the train out uh, and they can't get a cab. Or, and even there were times when protesters were barricading hotels, so they can't get into your hotel. I think people will start to think twice. The airport alone currently contributes approximately 5% to Hong Kong's GDP. Filling in for Jeff Short, I'm Ben Thomas. Be sure to join us on Friday for the next edition of The Shortlist. All right, T, we've got one more segment we want to explore today. We're going to be doing an episode of The Pivot. The pivot. Hit him with it. I gotta. There we go. There we go. Oh, there we go. Just a double. So in case anyone doesn't know, pivot is a segment we do on Business Casual where we take one topic and we kind of try to present a both sides scenario here and unpack pros and cons to something. It's not always that simple. Not everything is black and white and has, you know, a side A, side B. Sure. Um, But we do try to provide some at least general positivity around a subject and then just some general cynicism or negativity around a subject and try to balance them both and see what can we learn from both sides. So today we're going to be doing that for extended reality. And really the conversation is, is it time to bring extended reality, which is VR, AR and MR, virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, to the business world. Is it time? 
Uh, from a general financial perspective, I mean, the market is booming. Right. So that is, I think, enough of a motivator and why we see so many articles and so many explainer videos about, oh, now's the time to invest. Here are the startups to invest in VR. I mean, it, it's big. People like the tech. Uh, and combining everything from entertainment to marketing to training applications, the extended reality market was forecasted at $27 billion in 2018. Oh. Huge. Now, Huge. for 2022, $209 billion. I mean, we're talking gigantic growth. So... Where might we see some of this technology be useful? Here's kind of a optimistic and excited perspective on this. Uh, really, this would be that XR will create new necessary experiences to elevate the customer experience. Uh, I'll dive into why I think this is exciting, but let's listen to Director of Technical Innovation, Giannis Kaboulis. Uh He is at an AV company called Electrosonic, and they just released an episode of their podcast, Fusion, on this topic. Uh, here he is breaking down one example of where XR might be useful in hospitality. When we're trying to deliver to our clients or to the consumers, for example, um, we're trying to book uh, a vacation. We don't know where we need to go, where we need to stay, uh, what we need to see. In an extended reality environment, if you would put on the side for now and not think about what kind of hardware that might require, we could uh, allow someone to do his research, view the places, maybe feel the climate, feel maybe the hardness of the bed that it's in that inclusive resort, and then make a very informed decision. I love that because that is a perfect example of how XR can remove friction for the customer in a time where friction is really what they're avoiding at all costs. Absolutely. It's why we don't get off the couch. It's why we love Netflix. It's why we love Amazon. <laughs> it's why I love delivery. Literally, it's why we love our DoorDash, our Grubhubs, our, our Uber Eats. It's because friction is a thing of the past for the consumer experience. And if you're going to get people to engage with something, it's got to be easy. And if they're going to get up off their couch and physically go somewhere, mm -hmm. it needs to be unique and immersive and exciting, which is why extended reality is being used for AV applications, being used um, in, in hospitality, in entertainment, and it's why it's so exciting. Now, what's the negative side of this? Well, extended reality, if we're looking at it from a more pessimistic or realistic perspective, it's just still very expensive and it's not that accessible. Here's a quick news story from CBC News in Canada. They were describing how um, XR, excuse me, XR and VR might not be that useful in schools because of that barrier. This classroom kit costs about $10,000, keeping it out of reach for many schools. We need workbooks and you need pencils and you need uh, school supplies for the kids or um, expanding the library and stuff like that. So it, it is a really huge price tag. With more adopters, the cost is expected to come down. But even if the equipment gets cheaper, educational content is still expensive to create. I think that's the balance we need to look at moving forward, Tyler, is that this technology, though exciting, takes a lot of hardware implementation to really get in there on a on any sort of tangible and useful scale. Mm -hmm. And even once you get that hardware, like they said, the content that then populates all of that AR and VR, whether you're talking it's in school 
whether you're at a theme park or whether you're at a hotel or whether you're trying to access stuff on Google Maps even, right? right. And they implement AR or VR. That costs money to create that content. Definitely. And you need the creative vision. You need people on board to deliver on that vision. It's a, it's a layered topic, and I am optimistic about XR in yeah. business. I think it's very useful, but I do think they need to get past that cost hurdle before we can really look at it any more seriously. I absolutely agree with you, buddy. Thank you. That's going to do it. I'm glad you agree with me. I wish I had more time to disagree with you, but I don't. Because that's the end of the show, Daniel. It is, unfortunately. Everyone, thank you for listening to Business Casual this Wednesday morning. We'll be back Friday, 8 a.m. I'm Daniel. I'm Tyler. And we'll be back soon. Business Casual.